Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Well, good morning. My name's Douglas. I think most people know me. There's a few people probably don't. But um, it certainly is an honour and a privilege to be here and, and to, to share from the Gospel of Mark. We're warming you up for the second half of the Gospel. We've been priming the pump. We've been reviewing the Gospel of Mark. And, and so we've had Dave and Brett. Um, I'm the third instalment of the, uh, the review of chapters 1 to 8, which is what we got through last year. So you can probably anticipate we will actually get to the end of Mark by the end of this year. You may have noticed that um, both Dave and Brett took a thematic approach. Uh, Dave brought us the question, what happens when the right thing comes in the wrong way? And he was looking at the way the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting and praying, waiting for the reign of God to come. And there's Jesus standing before them, the king, who's arrived. And uh, we shouldn't be too harsh on them. They just didn't get it. No one got it, actually. We'll discover a bit more about that in a moment. But really, the crux of that message was to say, you see in the Gospel of Mark this inability to hear and see because God comes in a way that we do not expect. Jesus is not what people expect. No one could have invented that story. When you look at history and the way gods are created by man, no one's going to create a humble God who comes and serves people and submits himself to the sin of the world doesn't defend himself before an unjust trial and goes to the cross and dies, that sin may be put to death and conquers death itself. This is not a story humans would make. And I wonder how the Lord is coming to you because he is the same yesterday, today and forever in his character and his ways. But the way he manifests himself to us and throughout history can be manifold in his expression. And the encouragement was as we move into this year, into this decade, God is doing a new thing. He's moving in a new way. But that doesn't mean he has changed. It just means you have to surrender your expectations about what that looks like. Brett comes along and he uh, takes the second portion of that gospel and really narrows in on this whole idea of if he who has ears to hear, listen. Which is a little bit what Isaiah speaks about this morning. Again, taking a thematic approach and just showing how some of this stuff runs through the gospel. Well, I'm going to do a similar thing. Uh, I'm going to take something because, to be honest, if I, I actually did sit down and start talking out how much it would, how long it would take for me to actually deliver on an explanation of chapters six to eight, and I got about 40 minutes and I was a third of the way through, and I thought I'm not going to have anyone listening to me by the time I get to lunch, <laughs> and it's not serving you well in that way. So, I'm just going to highlight some things out of chapters six up to eight verse 30 to 31, and um, hopefully by that stage, you'll feel ready to get in to the second half of the Gospel of Mark, which starts next week. So I'm going to look at uh, chapter 6, but before I get there, I'm just going to say some introductory remarks and then get into some of the text itself. We're fortunate that we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, 
they all give a considered account of the life of Jesus and they do it in their own way. But Mark, of all four of them, is considered and regarded by a general consensus among scholarship to be the first that was written. Then we have Matthew and Luke. Now, some of you may know that these three, Matthew, Mark and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels, which is really just a way of saying they have a lot in common because they're actually taking a lot from Mark and writing similar things. But So we have that. And then you have this Gospel of John, which if you ever opened that after reading Mark or Matthew or Luke, you realise it's actually something quite distinct. Reality is, however, that actually each Gospel is incredibly unique. They are all coming at it from a different perspective. They're all looking at Jesus' life through a different lens and they all have a particular purpose in mind and a different audience. And so um, that construction and that uniqueness is also present in all four Gospels. It's not like they're talking about four different people. It's just that how do you capture the life and the person of Jesus Christ in one story? So the gift that we have is actually four. <laughs> Probably write a hundred, but God realized that a book can only be so thick, and so <laughs> it gives us four, which is sufficient. Now, Mark's gospel really has at the heart of this question, who is Jesus? Right at the heart, it's just running through at the core of this gospel, and it's one of the distinctives of the gospel of Mark, and a question that we're actually confronted with time and again throughout the reading of this, this gospel. But it is particular to this, the first half, He goes somewhere else in the second half, but it leads up to this point where Peter and the disciples are with Jesus up at Caesarea Philippi, which is way up the north, um, outside of the territory of uh, Galilee. And Jesus gets very specific. First he says, who do they say that I am? Who are the people saying that I am? And there's various responses, but he gets personal and asks them directly, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And that's when Peter has this revelation. Lord, you are the the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus immediately after that starts telling about he must um, suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after that be raised again. And it's, I find this quite humorous, I don't know about you, but at that point Peter feels so compelled about what he's saying that he needs to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. Imagine that. Can you imagine being among the disciples? Here the Son of God is teaching and instructing you about things, and then you're so stirred up because what you, what, what's in your little head and how you think things ought to go is so at odds with what he's saying is that you grab him by the hand, you pull him aside, and you think, listen, Jesus, I just need to teach you a lesson. <laughs> this is essentially what Jesus, uh, Peter is doing to Jesus, and... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they all just like the oxygen sucked out of the air when Jesus turned around to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. It's like, (gasps) and then he says, because your mind is set on the things of man, not on the things of God. This is that turning point. And we might talk a little bit about that later to, to a greater degree, but it's Peter's reaction that's really interesting. Here he is, a man who's had a revelation about who Jesus is. But clearly something's wrong because what he's heard and then the way he acts shows that he didn't get it. And you may have heard this many a time, but it's worth repeating. that The Jews were fasting and praying for a Messiah, and that title Messiah is commonly understood as a royal title. It's linked to the Davidic promise. 
2 Samuel 14, God comes to David and one of the things he says is, I will establish one of your offspring and he will reign on your throne forever. That's the Davidic promise. And so when it talks about Messiah, it's commonly related to this particular promise. So it's a promise of a future king who would reign on the throne forever and who would liberate them from their ruling oppressors and establish his reign over Israel. Now, how would he do that? He would do that by military might. For any of you who have read through the gospel, you realize that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus does. So Jesus, when he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near, or perhaps more appropriately, that the reign of God is near, the Jews are probably anticipating some kind of political liberation by military force, but he actually doesn't do that. In fact, he goes in the opposite direction. He heads to the cross. So hence, Mark is writing to address this very issue, not just to demonstrate that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah the Jews had been looking for, which is what occupies that first half of the Gospel. Who is this Jesus? But then he goes into this second half to narrow in and focus on how he becomes king. The question, who is Jesus, is a question that challenges everyone. It challenged everyone in that day. It's the question that challenged Mark's original audience. It remained the preeminent theological question of the first three centuries. You could arguably say it's the question for the last 2,000 years or so. But they were particularly interested or intrigued or trying to figure out how Jesus is Lord, how Jesus is divine and human. Imagine that, talking about one question for about three and a half centuries. That conversation is where this idea of the Trinity came into being. It challenges people throughout history, and it's the very question that challenges us even today. And it will challenge every person on the planet until his return. Now, you may ask, why is that important? Now, we can assume that we understand that, but I just want to make it clear for you this morning. Firstly, the reason that's so important is that Jesus makes an unequivocal and unambiguous claim in the Gospel of John. Some of you have heard this. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Which means there is no other way to God. There are not many paths up the same mountain. It is not, as our culture believes, each to find their own way. It is not the same God as Allah. It is not Brahma, Vishnu or Shiva or any other 33 million gods in the Hindu religion. It is not Buddha. It is not the New Age enlightenment of self with the oneness as uh, being, being one with the spirit of the universe. No. Only Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. Now, unfortunately, it seems that Christianity has taken a bit of a hit in presuming to be exclusive, because they think that we create boundary then say, because we believe you're out, which is quite ironic, because actually the Gospel, as you'll see, and we'll see with the the two feedings, is that the Gospel is a message that goes out to all the nations, and the invitation is for those, anyone who chooses to believe. And the reason it's unfortunate is because this exclusivity has got nothing to do with whether you can belong or not. Anyone who reads this gospel will realize that Jesus is trying to break down every barrier that separates male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, that we would be one humanity. No, the the exclusivity of the claim has got to do with the fundamental questions of reality. And to that end... Everyone, actually, is making an exclusive claim. And if you don't believe me, 
Go out in the week, start expressing your beliefs, and when you find someone who is countering you and arguing against you and saying no, you discover that they're actually doing the same thing. What they're really doing is saying, I don't agree with what you're saying is right, what I believe is right, and I'm making a claim, and that's why I'm arguing with you and pushing back. That's all that's going on. It seems that somehow, though, Christianity is exclusive, and yet everyone is doing that. So how do you verify and understand and make sense of truth claims? That's a question for another day. Maybe some of you might be interested in pursuing that. I'm not going to go there today. But this is why I say that question about who Jesus is is important for every person. Because if the claim is right and true, then your entire life depends on your answer to who Jesus is. And as a believer, as one who knows Jesus, I'm convinced that that is the most important question anyone can ask and answer in the entire span of their life on this planet Earth. Who is Jesus? Why is this important? Second reason, for those who actually believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, it becomes critical to know how Jesus became king. How did he reign on earth? We need to know this in order to understand God's ways. In other words, what is the pathway that he takes to power, authority, dominion and rule? Because the problem is, if you hear that good message of salvation and you see the pathway to power and then you take the worldly views of how power is attained and wealth and status, you've completely missed it. Because the world exercises oppression, dominion, force, might, out of greed and out of self-interest. And this has nothing to do with the way that Jesus went to be elevated to that position of all authority, power, rule and dominion. And it has a direct implication on the way we live our lives. If you think that the way of Christ is to dominate and to rule and to oppress and bring into conformity the people of the earth, you have so, so missed it. Jesus came in humility and in service. And the thing he liberated us from is a far greater evil that essentially rules and reigns and expresses itself in all manifold evil ways. It's the dominion, the heavenly realm of Satan, demonic, that takes sin and drives us toward the end, which is death for all people. And we cannot save ourselves from that. Only Christ can set us free. David said last week, what happens when the right thing comes in the wrong way? We need to understand who Jesus is and what it means to reign in life because so much of what we think can often be at odds with the way he works. And all that's how do we get there? It's wrapped up in knowing Jesus. It's being trained to become like his. I mean, that is, after all, what it means to be Christian, become like Jesus. We devote ourselves to Scripture because we believe that the life of Jesus and the apostles constitute what is normative Christianity. Hence, if our faith is genuine, then we recognize that knowing Jesus is essential to growing in discipleship and of primary importance. After all, how can you become like someone you do not know? For those of you last week may recall that this point was brought home very clearly when Brett was speaking. 
saying that if anyone or anything gets in the way of your pursuit of the Lord, it has way too high a priority in your life. If anything and anyone gets in the way of you and your pursuit of the Lord, that has way too much priority in your life. And I actually just wanted to qualify this a little. Not because Brett, I think, got it wrong in any respect, but Brett was actually making an assumption. (laughs) He was making an assumption, which I hope was accurate, but nevertheless, it was the assumption that all of you hold to the confession that Jesus is Lord. Because obviously, if you don't believe that, Jesus won't become your first priority. That makes sense, doesn't it? He won't become the priority of your life. So there are actually many, I think, who do confess Jesus as Saviour, but I would suggest that when it comes to lordship, there are those who actually find this idea a little more challenging and not so easy to swallow. And yet that's where the rubber hits the road. It's not necessarily an easy one to embrace, not least of which because it means actually dethroning yourself, getting off the throne of your own life, and allowing Jesus to dictate both the direction and the purpose of your life and the way in which you ought to live. He doesn't leave you hanging out there doing it by yourself. One of the biggest lies that people suffer from is thinking they have to do everything by their own strength. It is actually a surrender of what you think is strong in yourself and allowing the grace of God to come and empower you. Nevertheless, Jesus remains Lord. And this is nothing, there's nothing more countercultural, especially in our day, than this concept. We are in a society that has exalted freedom of self-determination of everything else. Self-autonomy is one of the primary gods of our day. I bet you didn't know gods existed. <laughs> you would think if you go out in the community, people don't think gods are still present. They are very present and very real, and people worship at the altar of self-autonomy. And everything is geared toward determining the own course of life, even at the disregard and the expense of others. This is not the way of Jesus. Hence, I'll say it again, if our faith is genuine, then we will recognize that knowing Jesus is essential to growing a discipleship, and therefore it becomes a priority in our daily life because you cannot become like someone you know. Which is why we've taken this journey in the Gospels. We need to know who Jesus is and for that to be registered in our hearts if we are to be disciples because what is a disciple after all but one who learns to walk in the ways of their master? To speak like he speaks, to talk like he sporks, to love, talk like he talks. (laughs) Sporks. (laughs) Isn't that like a spoon fork? (laughs) How you eat? Uh, To eat like Jesus eats? It's your manner of being starts to become a reflection of who Jesus is. And if you try and do that behaviorally in your own strength, people will see right through it. But when you come to know Jesus and his love is birthed in your heart, you'll discover that people cannot deny the love that exists in your heart because he transforms the way you see, the way you think, the way you feel towards your brother and sister, not just in the church but for all humanity. And out of compassion, you want to do your part in seeing his redemptive plan to restore not just humanity, but all of creation. As a witness to the might and majesty and the glory and supremacy of Jesus, our Lord. So with that in mind, I want to turn to the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to look at feeding the multitudes in order to illustrate how Mark continues to present Jesus as the fulfillment and the long, of the longings and hopes 
of, Jew, of the Jews for the God's coming kingdom and how their ancient story would be brought to its long-awaited co- conclusion but also to inaugurate this new era which, as David, a writer, has explained before, because I don't want you to confuse that with King David, <laughs> David Ryder, talking about that the mark, Jesus' arrival and announcement about the kingdom of God being near marks the coming of a new kingdom and the passing away of the old kingdom of this world. So to do that, let's turn to Mark chapter 6. It'll be up on the screen. We'll turn your devices on. And I'm going to read out from verse 30 in Mark 6. And I'm going to just reread this story of the first feeding of the 5,000. So I'm not going to summarize chapter 6 to 8. I'm just going to take some stuff that these stories are actually quite central. And I want to show you how Mark is, again, taking the things of Jesus' life and drawing the threads and pointing to the revelation or bringing revelation to what was mapped out in the whole story through the law and the prophets about who Jesus would be and what he would come to do. So chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them coming and going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they, found, they brought five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. And he said a blessing and broke it, the bread, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Remarkable story. Which we come to not long after Jesus has been rejected by his hometown. He sent out the twelve. The twelve are proclaiming the gospel and seeing healings and casting out demons just as Jesus had done. There's this juxtaposition, this entry of this story of King Herod, which I'd love to unpack for you, but I haven't got the time, in between the disciples going out and coming home, and then Jesus says, come away. Now, the first thing it's good to note about this particular passage is the location in which they are um, abiding. They're actually on the Sea of Galilee. They go up to the north, so they're probably sitting on the northeast shores of Galilee. The northeast shores of Galilee are still in Jewish territory. And this territory which they go to is also a desolate place. 
It's mentioned three times, so Mark is trying to make a point. And who gathers there? Well, it's predominantly Jews because of its being in Jewish territory, which verse, and verse 32 indicates that it was actually people who had bear and witness to these disciples because it talks about the people seeing them. So you can probably picture that the disciples have been around the surrounding villages preaching the gospel, doing all these signs and wonders, and they get on a boat, and so people spot them, and so they start tracking them and arrive at this desolate place before they get there. And when, when, they, when Jesus arrives, it says... When he had, uh, it says he had compassion on them when he saw the crowd, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, it's good to know here that it's actually not Jesus speaking. This is Mark recollecting the account. Now, I don't doubt that Jesus didn't have compassion, and I don't doubt that he was thinking these people look lost, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Mark is doing something very specific here. And in order to illustrate that, we're going to turn to Numbers 27. And I want you to hear what this Moses' prayer is saying way back when he knew that he would not enter the promised land. And so he goes before the Lord and asks a petition. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Remember how Mark is addressing that question, who is Jesus? Mark has an amazing way of reaching back into the Old Testament and drawing out these allusions to the identity of Jesus. And this is the first time we see Jesus being introduced as the shepherd. And it also brings to mind another passage that comes from Ezekiel 34. I'm not going to get you to turn there. But this idea of the Lord as shepherd is brought up and it actually comes in the midst of a rebuke against the shepherds of Israel. This is what the word of the Lord that came to Ezekiel said. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. I'm just going to give you some excerpts from chapter 34. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, you have lost, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Right in that condemnation of the shepherds, you can see that this is not the way of God, this is not the way of his reign, this is not the way that his leaders, his shepherds, appointed shepherds, ought to behave. It's a strong rebuke. He goes on to say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves because they'd be exploiting them out of their own self-interest. And then the Lord says, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Can you see how the shepherds were devouring the very people that they were supposed to look after? He goes on to say, Behold, I myself will search out for my sheep and I will seek them out. A little further on he says, They will lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Anytime you see that word Lord, God, it's the expression of God's name, Yahweh, with Elohim. 
And so it is the Lord stating very clearly that he will become the shepherd of his people. Surprisingly, though, he carries on with the rebuke. (laughs) God is not finished. But he brings this subject up again in verse 22 of 34. He says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he will feed them and be their shepherd. Isn't that interesting? There's this strange thing going on where the Lord is saying, I will be the shepherd, but then he says, I will appoint a shepherd, my servant David. Now, if you've been listening any time, you've been listening to the message last year, you will know that there are many particular titles that describe who Jesus is. One of them is servant of the Lord. That other David, again, refers to that Davidic promise. So here, what Mark is trying to get his audience to understand is Jesus, by that one line, they look like sheep without a shepherd, that Jesus is the shepherd. But it carries on in there because there's some really interesting little details and if you'd listened to Brett's message on this last year, you'd realise that there's this one little insight that takes a lot of people by surprise because Mark is very economical with his words and it makes no sense why he starts talking about the pasture. It's that one line where he says he asked them to sit down on the green grass. Now, that seems pretty irrelevant, right? But some of you are already primed for this because I've been talking about the shepherd. You've heard in Ezekiel that he puts them down in green pastures. But where have you heard the shepherd and green grass before? Hmm. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack anything is what that word says. I shall not be in want. It's not like I shall have not any desires. I shall not lack any good thing. He makes me sit down in green grass. He leads me beside still waters. He restores and refreshes my soul. Can you see the picture? Can you see them coming to a desolate place to seek rest? And there is the Lord getting them to sit down, taking the bread and feeding the multitude. Not just down to the last drop, but how many baskets do they collect? like 12 baskets, plenty of leftovers. God is not stingy or short in his provision. You can see how Mark is so amazing in the way he's constructed this gospel. Because the gospel is embedded in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the seedbed of the New Testament. You cannot understand Jesus rightly until you start to unpack and explore the Old Testament. But I thank the Lord that we actually sit this side of the resurrection because what Mark is doing and what no one got in Jesus' day, they only came to understand post-resurrection. So don't be too put off if you don't understand because the disciples never got it and people after that still require the revelation of the Lord to reveal himself. But we have the lens of those New Testament writers with which to understand how the story of Israel is fulfilled in Christ himself. Now you may wonder if Mark is so clever and so brilliant in constructing his gospel, why on earth would he actually put in a second feeding? Like he's already had that story and it's made its point. So it seems kind of redundant, you know, and I think uh, now... 
I'm not sure if this is true. I'm kind of testing my memory here. But I think some have actually suggested that Mark either got amnesia or was a little slow-minded or he's not that clever, so he's just kind of told the story again. Which <laughs> I think is a little presumptuous and condescending, <laughs> especially when you look at just how magnificent this gospel is put together. That, that, is, that somehow he's got to this point and he's suddenly had a, a bit of a mental breakdown or a blank and he's just carried on with the second story. But the key to understanding why it's present actually has a lot to do with where it's located. Because Jesus moves on from there and we look to the second story. This second story is recorded over the page, uh, chapter 8, beginning verse 1. But in case you miss it, you have to go up a little into verse 7 because he's come from Sidon and he returns to the Sea of Galilee and then he goes around and he ends up in the Decapolis. Now, uh, how many of you remember the story of the demoniac? How many of you remember where that was? The Decapolis. How many of you remember anything about that place? <laughs> and this is outside Jewish territory, okay? So you've got the... You've got the West coast of Sea of Galilee, got the east coast of Sea of Galilee, over here Jews travel across the sea, you arrive in essentially Greek or Jewish territory. And you may recall that there was everything unclean about that whole scenario with the demoniac. He's got an unclean spirit, he's been made to live in an unclean place among the tombs, he lives among an unclean people whose primary, one of their primary industries is farming pigs, which you know for Jews is an unclean animal. So this whole thing is just, there's no good reason why a Jew would ever go there. And yet here we find Jesus back in the Decapolis and what's he about to do? <laughs> he's about to feed the hungry, those who have flocked to him, those who have inclined their ear, those who have had this deep hunger. He just starts teaching them all manner of things. And then we have this repeat story because they have nothing to eat. They've been there three days. <laughs> Gee, can you imagine listening to someone for three days? You'd have to be a pretty amazing preacher to hold them for a day, let alone three that kind of gives you an idea of just how good Jesus was at holding a crowd. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. But it goes on, and it actually has a similar pattern where they'd have no food, he asks for food, but the point I want you to see is that Jesus is feeding predominantly Gentiles, which is something the Jews would never have done. And I can't help but wonder, I don't know if I'm drawing a, a, a too much of a, a thread here, but when I saw this, Just Isaiah 49, just because it talks about the servant of the Lord. And I'm just going to read it to you. Verse 1 to 6 of chapter 49 of the prophet Isaiah. It says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. I just want to pause there for a moment. When you see that term servant, in Isaiah particularly, starting verse 40, often Israel was referred to as the servant of the Lord. It goes way back to Exodus, when Pharaoh has been confronted by Moses, and Moses being told to say to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. 
So this idea of Israel being a son and a servant is right back in that moment, even before they're taken out of the land. God is identifying them both as son and servant. And yet it seems throughout history, it's not seems, it's obvious, they actually never fulfilled what it meant to be a true son of God and they weren't, because of their rebellion and and, uh, rebellious ways, never served the Lord in the way that it was intended. So in Isaiah, there's this switch that goes on where it goes from talking about Israel as the servant of the Lord to an individual, a person. And this is what's going on right here. It says, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then it says, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And so now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Jacob is another reference to Israel. Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was renamed. Some of you may recall that story way back in Genesis. So Jacob, Israel, there's a, and there's reasons why that name is separated. But anyway, uh, there's the two distinctions. And that Israel might be gathered to him. I'm just going to skip down to verse 6. This is what he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The idea that Christianity would be exclusive and exclude people is in direct contradiction to both that prophetic word from Isaiah and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus goes out into the Gentile territory as a shepherd. He takes the word to them. These are outsiders. These are people that who the Jewish elite would regard as unclean, that don't belong in the presence of God. They were focused on their own salvation and military might and power. And yet Jesus is by demonstration going to those who are hungry and and those who most people would have regarded as written off. He goes to a Syrophoenician woman and and it's an extraordinary account, but it's in Tyre and Sidon. and, And if you know a little bit about Israel's history and you go back to Ahaz and Jezebel, you know that Jezebel, who brought in such idolatry, who killed off the, and had executed all the prophets, well, not all the prophets of Israel, but basically brought in child sacrifice into the Israelite community because she ended up being married to Ahaz, you can understand why God would say there was none more wicked than Ahab because of the way he reigned and the way he took on this idolatrous worship. It was an abomination. It still is an abomination the people would sacrifice children the altar of self. Here's Jesus going out to the Gentiles, going up into Siren Sodon, and he's taking this message of salvation. He's a light to the nations. There is no one that is excluded. This message is for anyone who has ears to hear. I hope you can see the way in which Mark is so cleverly retelling the story of Jesus in a particular way, and he is drawing from the Old Testament. And that you're seeing how this retelling of Jesus' life conveys to the readers how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the culmination of Israel's hopes and longings, but not only that, the hopes and longings of every person on the planet. I just want to talk a couple more minutes because after this, 
we very quickly get to this revelation of Peter, there's no question, no question at all that as to the identity of Jesus Christ. And yet there was this problem. And the first thing I want to point out is that with all the glory and the wonder and you see the disciples going out and you see them doing all this amazing stuff, yet there is another dimension to the Christian life that I don't think people really like to face up and talk about, but it's the path of suffering. There are many followers of Christ. But Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I've thought a lot about this. And, you know, in the world, there are people who literally die because they confess allegiance to Jesus. And so we tend to frame suffering, maybe in that narrow perspective of persecution. But I tell you, you suffer for Christ when someone sins against you and you don't retaliate. You suffer for Christ when someone harms you and you love them back. You suffer for Christ when you forgive. You suffer for Christ when you're willing to look inside your own heart and address the issues that are causing you to sin against others. You suffer for Christ when you're willing to accept that you have put up boundaries between you and others because of their race, their ethnicity, their gender, their age, or whatever other barrier you'd like to think. You suffer for Christ when you say yes to Him and forsake all else. So within that context of suffering, I think I was wondering what I'd do at this point. I do have another page and I kept losing it. This is the finality of my sermon this morning. But I have not been able to get past the fact that in John's Gospel, there's an incredible promise here because I think a lot of people are crying out for the Lord. They want to meet Him. They want Him to come to him, to you. You want Jesus to come to you. You want Him to show Himself. And sometimes we have this question in our heart, does He really love me? And it seems sometimes that the cross is not enough. I, I don't understand that. And I do. Because His love is so amazing that we find it incredibly difficult actually to comprehend. But He says in John 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. Now, keeping isn't meaning that you are so good at your walk that you are just perfectly righteous. It's talking about an inclination of the heart, your intention to hold on to His Word. It's an intentionality, a direction that you set, that you would take His Word as truth and that you would, in your lifetime, Work out your salvation so that you would become more like Him, that you would reflect His nature and His love and His goodness. And then He says this, which is really what stumps me. He says, And He who loves me, so just remember that if you take His word and you keep it, that's evidence that you actually love the Lord, right? You got that? When you give your intentionality, you just incline your heart to want to keep what He says despite how you might fail in your attempts. Nevertheless, that your inclination is in that direction. He says that is a sign and an indication you love Jesus, that you are devoted to Him, that your longing is to actually please Him. And because of that, He says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father 
and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What an extraordinary promise he's putting on the table if you just incline yourself to me. If you set your intention of your heart toward me, I will. Not someday, I will. Not maybe. Not to you guys over there because you're all good, but you guys, you look like a bit of a rabble, so we're not going to do that. No, it's got nothing to do with anything except your inclination of your heart. And he says, I will manifest myself to you. Why don't you pray with me? I wonder where your heart is right now. I pray that you would just allow the Lord to speak to you. And if you've heard whatever you've heard this morning, wherever you are, if somehow you think you're not good enough, you can't come into the presence of God, or if you've struggled to see who Jesus is, if you want to hear and you think, why isn't he manifesting himself to me? Maybe you have to let go of the fact that it's not about what you're doing and just open your hands and allow the Lord to come to you in his way and his timing and to simply receive the love that he has for you. And you can do that right now. You don't have to do anything before me to do it because you're actually before the Lord as you sit there in your heart. And my longing for you is that you would actually open your heart to him. You don't know how, have to know how it happens. You don't have to know anything except the promise that if you turn your life toward my commands and you try and hold on to them, then I will manifest myself to you. Lord, have your way in this house right now. We give you praise and glory for the magnificence of your gift of eternal life, for such great love, a love that we cannot fathom the breadths or lengths or heights or depths, that yet you pour that into our hearts by the, by the Holy Spirit, that you shed your love abroad in our hearts. I pray that you would do that right now. Manifest your love in the hearts of your people right now. You hear the cries of their heart, Lord. Manifest right now, Lord. Do your work among your people that we may be filled to overflowing with your love and with joy and the freedom that has come through the cross. And bring us into that resurrection life to walk in the liberty and to be able to go out and bring liberty to others who are captive, who are blind, who are oppressed, who are in great need, Lord. Whatever that looks like, that you would use us as your mouthpiece, as your hands and your feet in love, in gratitude and in a joy so great that your presence in our lives would be undeniable and that you would be glorified through the works and the deeds that we do in your name. Amen.